turning artificial intelligence green. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. John Cohn, IBM fellow at the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab. Welcome, Dr. Cohn. Oh, nice to be here, Tanya. Really happy to be here. So give us a brief summary of your extensive and colorful background at IBM. Ah, well, I was born on a snowy day in New York uh, in 1959, but it's been a blur ever since then. All I would say is, let's see, I've, um, I'm a real, I'm a definitely an inveterate nerd. You know, I've been a nerd forever. I uh, grew up in Texas, nearby you, but then went to MIT because it was the best nerdy school I could find, and then uh, graduated there in 81 with a, a, a device physics major then came up to here where I live near Burlington, Vermont, because IBM had a very large semiconductor fab. And believe it or not, I've been there 39 years and it's been an incredible ride. I love, I love making things with my hands and I love making chips. So this was the perfect place. Um, and that took me on this kind of crazy journey. I, I fell in love with the software you use to make chips. So I did that for 30 years. And I was the chief scientist for IBM for that. And I make a, a habit of every 30 years, you should change it up. So uh, I became um, the chief scientist for IBM's Internet of Things business, which was using chips and computers, putting them together, two things I love. Um, and uh, then I did that, and that was in Munich. Uh, so every other week, I would get on an airplane from here in northern Vermont to Munich. And um, it was a fantastic job, uh, but I you know, had enough frequent flyer miles, and I said, okay, and it was a great job. But what happened actually there is I was working on the software used in chips to, uh, to, to make them smarter. And I fell in love with artificial intelligence. And about that time, we had started a laboratory here at MIT down in Cambridge. And I am a rabid MIT fan. I actually uh, went to school there in you know, uh, 77 to 81. I am the co-founder of Vomit, Vermont's own MIT club. And um, I ended up really you know, loving to be there. And when, when IBM decided to make its largest investment in any, you know, on-site on uh, university thing, I said, you know, put me in. And so uh, John Kelly, our executive VP said, you know, why don't you go there and, and, and be the, the, the IBM fellow for the lab? And it's been fantastic. So what I do is I commute, I'm half time uh, down there in person, but I'm there all the time in, mentally. So it's been a great ride. And I'm, I'm now working with a team of people who are just just glow in the dark brilliant and i'm learning to be a real ai person so it's it's a very very mind expanding time for me i, I want to talk a little bit more about your role in fact in your role at mit ibm watson ai lab you oversee special projects including building a path toward a greener ai exactly how can ai become greener and, and why is that important oh it's so important i mean i've always been in love with the hardware side and, and kind of where it meets software. So what happened, I started uh, working on uh, to address the, the, the fact that there wasn't enough accelerated compute. It turns out that AI takes a ton of energy, you know, especially supervised learning the way we do it now. And uh, over the last year, I, I spent uh, designing and installing and operating a, a large supercomputer there called Satori. And in the process of building this IBM computer, it was really, really an amazing thing because usually I designed the chips. It was the first time I built something that big using them. Um, I started to realize how much power AI uses. You know, it turns out that the software 
just is incredibly energy um, consumptive. You use these uh, GPUs, graphics processing units, or, or accelerators along with the compute. And it started me thinking about, gosh, well, how, you know, how is this going to affect the world? What happened, though, is when we built this computer, we built it for speed. It was a IBM helping MIT kind of build up their, their processing. It turned out that every year, all of the supercomputers in the world are ranked by their speed, but also by their energy efficiency. And just because we'd made good choices, we were, you know, in the middle of the pack in terms of performance, which is still something of the top 500 supercomputers, but we were number four in the greenest computer, greenest supercomputer of the top 500. So that started me thinking, and it turns out that our computer is built at a, uh, at a place called the Mass Green High Performance uh, Computer Center, MGHPCC in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And it's on an old brownfield site. It's actually got on-site uh, hydroelectric power of a bi-power from a, a variety. It's 97% uh, green energy. And when you combined our, our fourth most energy efficient computer with the green energy choices, it started me thinking about, well, you know, because to kind of back it up a little bit, if, you know, energy consumption of AI is, is very large and AI is growing very large. And there's some projections that if we didn't change the way we did AI, you know, if we just continue to use supervised learning, um, that around somewhere around 2040, we're gonna use all the energy in the world. That would mean, you know, all the coal you could dig up and all the solar panels you could plant, we we're gonna run into a brick wall. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but I want to make sure it doesn't happen soon. I mean, the climate as a kind of Prius driving, Birkenstock wearing hippie from Vermont, you know, I'm all about the environment and I don't want to contribute to something that's actually going the other way. So what we've done with this Satori supercomputer is we've instrumented it. Um, so we're using the fact that it's super green to kind of make the point that when we've instrumented it to tell people how much power everything they do takes, um, it gives you feedback. It's just like, you know, like, now when you fly on an airplane, they tell you what the carbon cost is and you can buy an offset if you're feeling, you know, feeling so biased. But what that really does is it makes, it focuses people's attention. And so what we're doing with this supercomputer is by letting people know how much energy this thing uses, uh, they can make better decisions. And we've been able to see, you know, simply just by alerting people to it, they can get three, eight, sometimes 50 X times greener. As a matter of fact, we went through a calculation of, you know, the, the most intensive workload that we could run on this machine. It's 70 times more efficient, 70 times less carbon than a, a, a similarly sized, similarly capable machine in a less green data center, 70. So we feel that that gets people thinking in a way that we are going to avoid that brick wall. What makes Satori unique compared to other supercomputers? I mean, is it the hardware design? Is it the applications you can run? Well, it's uh, it's a combination. The, the energy efficiency is because of the IBM power uh, uh, architecture. So we have very large memory. We have very large memory in GPUs. It uses very exotic cooling. That's that, you know, uh, air cooling is very well cooled. So the density is quite high. So a combination of those kind of things made it the most energy efficient from the green 500, but it's the combination of that and the placement in this green data center that's kind of like two, of, you know, top of the heap on both of those that comes together to make it unique. Um, but I think, 
you know, honestly, the, the thing that's going to really move the needle. So you, everybody should be using the most efficient energy, uh, you know, computation that they can. But I think what really has to happen is we have to change the way that we think about doing AI software. We have to move away from just doing supervised learning. That is tons of, you know, um, labeled data, which the world doesn't really offer you unless you're just trying to do cats and dogs, right? So if we can get to a point where we can train on less data, and become better about making software that is, uses less data, that's gonna solve more energy no matter what kind of computer that you run on. So we're, we're trying to make the point and by giving people feedback that you know this approach versus that approach, one of them's greener versus the other, you don't have to be running on our fancy computer to do it, but it's just a great pedestal because we've got the instrumentation. And well, I can tell you, I can talk about this for hours, but uh, the idea of, how we use things, uh, my, my lab is concentrating on neural symbolic computing. And by doing that, we, could, we can show that you can train with far less data and training with far less data means generating far less carbon. So, and I would love to talk to you for hours and hours and hours about this and, and we'll have to have you back to do that. But I think you alluded to something that, that you may have answered my next question. As you look past the great quarantine of 2020, what MIT IBM projects are you most excited about? Well, I think, you know, I started to go right into it. What, what's interesting is that it's um, the, the idea that AI has gotten so popular with for the last, say, five years is the ability to use these neural network components to train on lots of data. So you do, I get tons of data, whether they're faces or dogs or cats or whatever, and they're labeled, they're meticulously labeled. And that is a, an approach that's really powerful for recognizing faces, et cetera. But it doesn't, it, what it's not good at is doing what humans do, which is just on the first or second time you see something, being able to understand it. You know, I don't know you well, but I know you're from Texas, so I bet you like Mexican food, right? Well, I can apply that kind of reasoning, but uh, straight AI, straight uh, uh, supervised learning doesn't know anything you don't tell us. So we're very interested in being able to apply symbolic reasoning, which is what drove AI for almost 50 years that it first existed, and then combine it with the new advances with neural computing. By doing that, you can use the best of both. Neural, you know, neural networks, deep learning is really good at parsing the world and saying what's around me and then applying the best parts of symbolic reasoning and, and symbolic logic and induction, planning, causality, to try to understand how to reason about it. That means I can bring experiences that I gathered from somewhere else and apply them to this new situation, which is something AI doesn't do very well. I'll give you an example. In one of the projects that we're doing with Josh Tenenbaum's lab at, at, at MIT, um, we were able to show on a particular data set that tries to answer visual questions be able to look at a, a picture and ask an arbitrary question and have the computer answer it, which you or I would have no trouble doing. Computers aren't very good at that. By using this neural symbolic thing, we were able to improve the accuracy to, to near perfect. I mean, a human is like 96%. The best software thing was about 98%. We're over 99% by using that. So it, it actually was more accurate, but it did it with less than 1% of the data less than 1%. And you can even reduce that further. So it was not only better, it used less data. And that, uh, you know, the combination of those two things together makes neurosymbolic really, really exciting. So that's the thing I'm most excited about. And it's going to have a direct output on power. It's going to make our AI much greener and much more flexible. 
Dr. John Cohn, IBM Fellow and Distinguished Agitator at the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab. What, what a unique title. Uh, John, we definitely want to have you come back anytime. If somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Well, there are a couple of places. I think that the, the lab, the uh, MIT IBM Watson AI Lab dot mit.edu, our website, um, or catch me on Twitter at John Cone VT, like John Cone Vermont, um, and I'll be very happy to answer. I'm always looking for friends. Thanks again, John. And you guys can find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.